Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And today, we're just gonna riff. I've got an app on my phone called Libby, and Libby is like a library app, and it lets you check out digital content. Magazines, books, audiobooks, you can take out like 10 at a time. And something that's both heartening and also kind of frustrating is realizing how frequently it's the case that for the first week of a book's appearance on shelves, not only is it not quite available yet at your public library, there's actually usually a wait of like 10 or 15 people. And there's a newish book I've been wanting for a couple months, and it's called Deadlines by Jill Lepore. Jill Lepore, incidentally, is a historian at Harvard, and she's a staff writer for The New Yorker. The title essay, Deadlines, is also the first one in the book, and it's about her best friend from grad school, and how Jill Lepore went like a more conventional route with her life and her career while her friend kind of stayed pretty bohemian, but then the friend got cancer, and she died, I think, in her late 20s, and the latter part of the essay is about how Lepore still has her best friend's old laptop, and on, like, the 20th anniversary of her friend's death, she opens up that laptop and starts digging around for the first time. At first, the laptop starts falling apart in her hands right away, like the cover pops off the screen and keys start popping off the keyboard, but eventually, with some help from her son, she's able to, like, strap the whole thing together and get it working. It's a really moving piece. But the prop of that laptop stayed with me for a while. It got me thinking about how everybody's tech in the not-too-distant future will be like the relics of our personal lives. Kind of like diaries, but probably, I was gonna say more intimate, maybe not more intimate than a diary. Because looking at someone's internet data once they're dead, it can tell you a lot about their life. Things that you didn't know, things that maybe they didn't even know about themselves. But a diary, on the other hand, the way that in a diary a person tells the story of her own life to herself might ultimately be more revealing than just like having a trillion bits of micro data that show you where the person was and what they were searching at a given time. Although maybe that's totally wrong. Maybe you do get a clearer idea of a person's state of mind by looking at like 100 days of their internet activity and like their text message manuscripts than you do from reading the 100 days of journal entries. Because in the diary, they can only tell you the patterns that they notice within their own life. When you look at someone's internet behavior, you would notice the patterns of their life that they themselves do not notice. Like you would see that maybe unknowingly, they check their email every ninth and 48th minute of every hour. And then maybe you look at what was going on in their life and where they were living and you realize, oh, there was a church bell that went on at, you know, twice every hour, whatever the, whatever. Point is, you look at the data and you could probably piece things together about the person that they didn't know about themselves. Which also kind of reminds me, and this might be a stupidly self-important idea that I concocted about working at a grocery store while I was working at a grocery store, but I was working the aisles the other day and I was getting a little spacey and I started looking around at all of the shoppers because we were slammed. Art Basel just ended in Miami and apparently for like the entire seven day run 
of Art Basel, none of the residents of Miami wanted to deal with the fucking apocalyptically horrible traffic. And so they all waited until the following Monday to go do their groceries. And it showed. Every line went almost to the back of the store, and almost everyone who was in line had a full shopping cart. But so on one of those days when I wasn't up at the register, I was just like watching people and like how they skimmed the shelves and how they crept through the aisles. And earlier that day, I'd been carrying these huge heavy cases of pasta sauce and olive oil up and down that particular aisle. And as I was doing it, I kept getting stuck behind people who were moving incredibly slowly with their shopping cart, walking down the center of the aisle, occupying the entirety of that very narrow space, and just kind of like leisurely wheeling along, reading the labels, stopping, taking something down, looking at the nutrition facts, scratching their chins and raising their brows and curling their lips and snarling as they put something back because they thought it was gross, or maybe wiggling because they're excited because it sounds really good. Of all the things that they were doing, all of the emotions that they were showing, all the behaviors they were exhibiting, the one that struck me is how they would so often have no idea that I had been standing behind them, like right behind them, for 10 or 15 seconds holding 20 pounds of pasta sauce. And that's when I realized that when people are grocery shopping, they're often so absorbed in the task that it becomes like one of the few places in which people are totally unself-aware. Like in 2024 now, with social media being where it's at and like everybody has a cell phone in their pocket and every cell phone has a selfie camera, I think it's safe to say that the average person kind of knows very, very well what they look like. Not only seeing themselves in the mirror every day, but they've seen video of themselves, they've seen photos of themselves, whether they're in the forefront of that photo or in the background of that photo. And if you just pull that taffy a bit farther, I think it's safe to say that the average person kind of knows what they look like when they're laughing, what they look like when they've got bedhead, or when they're angry, or when they're horny, or when they're being professional. But I don't think most people know what they look like when they are struggling to decide which cereal they want, or looking for a certain kind of olive oil that they're pretty sure was here last week, like last time they came around, but maybe, maybe it's just out of stock right now, or it's discontinued, or maybe it's right here and they're just not seeing it, but they also don't want to ask anyone for help because everyone looks busy. Speaking of not seeing things, it's not that I don't believe in God, necessarily, I just don't ever think about that, that entity. Because there's so much other stuff going on that like governs my life day to day, like the political forces, the meteorological forces, the social forces, financial, familial, traffic. I just kind of don't see where that influence is really something that takes shape or like begs to be reckoned with. But I do look forward to someday having enough money that I can like sit in a big comfortable chair and just think about God. It just strikes me as the kind of thing that preoccupies a person who's got a certain amount of free time or who gets kind of emotionally hooked on like just one or two of the main governing factors in their life. And when you think like, oh my God, everything that's going on in my life is governed by these two weird powers, you know, my boss and my spouse or my job and my hobby. I think when your cosmology only has those two big pillars of power, it's kind of easy to conceive of like a third party up in the clouds. But if you contextualize the clusterfuck of your life within sort of the clusterfuck push and pull of larger powers that are very like terrestrial and real. They all kind of crowd together and shoulder God out of the image. When you think about the power of like your bank 
your boss, your significant other, your parents, your colleagues, your landlord, the cashier you have to deal with later today, the cop who pulled you over, the politicians who are voting against your rights, the pothole that's gonna absolutely fucking catastrophically destroy your car if you're inattentive to it even once. One of my favorite books I read this year is an essay collection by Kate, I can't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, Katie Roife, R-O-I-P-H-E. It's called In Praise of Messy Lives. And there's an interesting piece in there from like 2016, and it's about being a feminist and looking at Hillary Clinton's campaign and feeling a kind of weird, like, less than joy about it. And she makes this interesting point that like when she was in college in the early 1990s, it was sort of a chic statement to wear a pin that said Hillary for president. She was in her 20s at the time and she was like kind of new to the world of feminist literature and theory. And then when she looked at the political scene, it was clear to everybody that Hillary Clinton was obviously just as capable as her husband, and she was strong-willed, and she was politically savvy. Like, 30 years go by, it's 2016, Hillary Clinton is now actually a front-runner for president, and it feels kind of impossible to get excited about it because she was such, like, a tr problematic figure. You didn't ask me this, but I'm gonna tell you, I think a major contributing factor to Hillary Clinton's diciness in 2016 is when everybody it's never talked about anymore not that i hear like when the, everyone realized what the democratic national convention had done to kind of kill bernie sanders campaign and then there was that day that like obama invited bernie sanders to the white house for a beer and then like six hours later sanders dropped out of the race i might be misremembering that time frame but it was something like that here's something bernie sanders tweeted this week quote the boomer generation needed 306 hours of minimum wage work to pay for four years of public college. Millennials need 4,459. I'ma say it again. The boomer generation needed 306 hours of minimum wage work to pay for four years of public college, but millennials need 4,459. Maria and I are looking for apartments in the area, and yesterday I went and I checked out this really nice place and it's like two blocks up the street it's in this building that i've always loved for the year that i've lived on the beach like every time i pass it while walking the dog and even though we can afford the rent like month to month we would have to put up like when we moved in we'd have to put up first last and deposit and the first last and the deposit is basically is and the and the price of the deposit is a full month's rent so the day we move in, so it's like $175 each for an application fee, plus $2250, plus $2250 for the first month, $2250 for the last month, and $2250 for a deposit, plus three months rent right up front. And I realize like my half of that amount of money that we would have to pay is what I earn in about two and a half months working at the grocery store like every dollar of my full-time job at the grocery store for two and a half months i was kind of heartened to hear in a recent interview with one of my favorite writers mostly i like his essays more than his short stories but jo his name is george saunders and i think this was on the ezra klein podcast he was talking about the early part of his career when he was struggling as a writer he was working during the day as an engineer i forget what kind but he did his writing just like other writers in that situation in the evenings on the weekends and he mentions in this interview now from the perspective of a 60 something year old venerated many times awarded probably quite wealthy american writer about how he and his wife were moving house he went into the attic and he found in an old box 
one of his diaries from when he was in his 30s. And paging through it and remembering so much that he'd forgotten, he says he found himself kind of heartbroken to see and to remember that every single page of that diary was consumed with worry about money. But frankly, on a certain level, and I know this isn't totally true, it's something I'm just saying because it sounds kind of clever and abstractly true, but if you're reading professional American fiction or professional American nonfiction, good luck finding a book that isn't. 